0: Join me in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be people who have free access to your Word. Lord, we pray as we open the Bible this morning that you would find us ready to not just hear, but to be responsive to what you have to say. That by your Spirit, you would lead us and guide us in your truth. That you would lead and guide us each personally in the implementation of your truth in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in the United States Air Force when I had my first encounter with a consultant. And uh, I learned that there were several things that were true about consultants. Uh, and I encountered them not just in the military, but uh, when I was in healthcare administration and in church life along the way, I've encountered consultants. And I'm not saying a consultant is so a group of people are necessarily um, bad I am saying, though, that by the time that they arrive, what they usually are good at is mastering stating the obvious, telling you things that you already knew, that you were trying to do but couldn't get done, and then leaving you with a large bill on the way out the door, consultants. But there have been, in the course of church history, there have been consultants who have really mastered this uh, art of Seeing where things really were and helping people see things they perhaps had not seen or perhaps had overlooked or perhaps had forgotten along the way. The New Testament writers, in my view, were the original church consultants. Inspired by the spirit of the living God, they often spoke to issues of church health. In fact, many of the New Testament letters are called occasional letters because some event, some occasion, some issue prompted a kind of corrective response. The old apostle John was like that at the end of his ministry in exile on the island of Patmos. Jesus himself shows up to give John the spectacularly flavored picture of the culmination of the kingdom of God that we know as the book of Revelation. But before in the book of Revelation, before the riders on the horses and the condemnation of Babylon and the lights and the battles and the spectacular scenery unfold, before all of that, Jesus gives John and some churches, some particular churches, seven of them, a consultation. Those consultations are particular for each church, but they're preserved for us so that every church down through the generations can undergo a bit of an assessment about its own health. And so that each person connected to a local church can discern our role in the health of a church family. So in today's case, the consultant Jesus, via his uh, gospel writing partner John, visits with the church at Ephesus. And we're going to find as he does that, that ignoring the heart, of a relationship. Ignoring the primary aspect of a relationship has consequences. So, what John's gonna want us to see this morning as we read through this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's gonna want us to see that believers in Jesus are supposed to be energetic about recapturing the essence of our relationship with Jesus. So we're gonna look in the Bible at Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. Again, you can find the scripture uh, translations available to you on the website, just to the right of the picture. But at at home, I trust you have access to your own Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version this morning. Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So a couple of notes about this. We're going to be unpacking these churches over the course of the next seven or eight weeks or so. Uh, In chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, John writes to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, The churches are the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Sardis is not the one that's down about just south of us here. This is Sardis in ancient Asia Minor. And when he does that, he unfolds a particular pattern when he talks to each of these churches. And the pattern goes something like this. He usually says, uh, gives some, gives some information about himself. He gives in each of these churches something that's commendable, something to emulate, something that's worth following. And then he usually talks about something to avoid and a reason why those things should be avoided. Whether those reasons why they should be avoided have to do with consequences or reward. And today, again, our church is, the church is the church at Ephesus. But second note, we need to say something about this word, church. When we hear the word church, we almost reflexively think of it as a building. But if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that the building is not the church. As beautiful as this building is, as beautiful as many church buildings are, they are just that. They are buildings. And as we've had to be creative over the course of the last year, we realize that there are ways to sustain worship and ways to sustain personal connection that have nothing to do with the physical structure. Because the church is not the building. The church is not the building. The church is... The people who have committed themselves in personal faith to Jesus Christ. That that is the church. And whether that group of people is gathering virtually, like we do right now, whether that group of people is gathering in the stinking cold Christmas Eve service on the front lawn of the church, whether that group of people has the blessing of being together inside a beautiful building or not, that group of people is the church. The building is not the church. So, thinking about the notion of the word church, we're going to see how this pattern unfolds for this particular church that John writes to the church in Ephesus. So the first thing in our pattern is, there's a little bit more information about Jesus in verse 1. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What's John saying here? As he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, John is reminding us that Jesus is present in the middle of the church. He is holding a firm grip on it. He is invested in its well-being. Nobody cares more about the church of Jesus Christ than Jesus does. I've been reminded over the last week about how um, we get our hearts torn and gripped, when we lose somebody that we love and care about. And in those moments, I'm always reminded of the reality that as much as we love somebody, Jesus loves them even more. As much as we love somebody, we cannot fathom the depth of the richness of the love Jesus has for that person. When we think about loving a church, we cannot even imagine how much Jesus loves that gathered group of people that we call the church. And John reminds us here that Jesus has this firm, firm, loving grip on the church. I was reminded this week about our friend Gene O'Mara, who has gone to be with Jesus and Gene and I talked a lot about baseball uh, along the way. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he was a fan of the you know Kansas City Royals, which I did not hold against him, but pitied him for. Um, I'm a fan of another team that has won more uh, World Series. Did I mention the Boston Red Sox? Yes. Anyway, um, we talked about baseball and softball a lot, and I can remember I was playing a, uh, in a particular softball game when I was in the military, and um, this was a game where, as the squadron commander of a basic training squadron, I was supposed to step up to the plate and do my job and help the team. It was instructors versus trainees. You got the picture? Instructors versus trainees. So I stepped up. I was on the team of the instructors, and, and the stands were full of basic trainees cheering the other team on, and I stepped up to the plate and uh, had my... Baseball, my softball bat in my hands, and the pitch came across. It was slow pitch, <laughs> so you have plenty of time to think about it as it's coming towards you. And as the ball was making its way towards me, I swung energetically at that pitch, and I lost my grip on the bat, and it went flying off into the stands. And the Chinese were very amused by this. We know what grip looks like. We know what grip looks like when we lose it. And we know what grip it looks like when we're holding tightly to it. John's telling us here in verse 1 that he is holding tightly to the church. He's got a firm grip on it. Jesus said that he would build his church and nothing would prevail against it. And when we hear that, we need to understand that Jesus is talking about the capital C church, not necessarily a particular group of, particular group of gathered people. So... The thing we learn about Jesus here is that he loves us and he's got his grip on us, a firm grip on us. And then in this church, the pattern continues, there are some commendable things. Some things to emulate, some things to enjoy, some things to repeat. And here's my observation, having been a pastor for a little while now, that it's rare that a church runs completely counter to the will of God. If we look hard enough and carefully enough, there are usually things that make Jesus smile. When Pastor Laura and I were in New England, we had for a time an interim ministry at a church in Clinton, Massachusetts. This church was a gathered group of the sweetest, most caring, incredibly generous people you might ever encounter in a church. But there were only 12 of them. And they were reaching a place where they just didn't know what would come next. But when we looked hard at that place, it was easy to see how much those people care about Jesus. So we look. And so in the case of Ephesus, in, chap- in verses 2, 3, and 6 of chapter 2, Jesus underscores their hard work, their labor, their patience. In verse 2, he talks about discernment. They can't bear those who go about doing evil. They have tested people who said they've come in the name of Jesus and realized because they've looked in the scriptures, they realized those people didn't come from Jesus because they were anchored in the word of God. They were hanging in their kind of people in verse 3. They were persevering people. They were not growing weary. In Colorado, in a church that I pastored there, there was a couple um, Their first names were G.L. and Belva. Belva, when she hit her 70s, began to experience a decline due to dementia. And like many people who begin to experience that decline, Belva was in physically really good shape. And so so she um, just kept on going and going and going and and, uh, physically, but over time her mental capacity declined. But GL, her husband, he cared for that woman like I've never seen anybody care for anybody else in my entire life. He kept track of her, he attended to her every need. For a little while, he thought, You know, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. I think I might need more help. And so, for about three weeks, she was in a nursing home. But he was there every day with her. And at the end of those three weeks, he took her home because he said, I want to take care of her. I'm the one who's invested in her. His family kept watching and of course they were helping out as much as they could and the church was helping out as much as it could but still GL was on duty 24-7, 365. He stayed with her, held her hand right up to the very moment she passed from this life into the arms of Jesus. Perseverance. 2020 has taught us something about perseverance I think as we've Engaged in COVID precautions and thought about things that we've never had to think about before and thought more carefully about what it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we've undertaken things like, would have become reflexive things now, like wearing masks? And I was in uh, Wally World, Walmart yesterday, and I was amazed at uh, looking around it. You know, 99% of the people in there were wearing masks. I did not kill the 1% person who was not wearing a mask. I just want to get that clear. Now, I wanted to, but I didn't. But we all grow weary, right? Wearing the masks, i got to say, it got old. Being so extraordinarily careful about where we go and when we go and how we interact with people when we do that. It's, Paul has a tendency to get really, really old. But Jesus points out here as he commends the church of Ephesus that perseverance in the body of Christ, perseverance is a thing. And it's a thing that had been commendable. In verse 6, Jesus talks about the people in this church of Ephesus hating the activities of a group of people called Nicolaitans, as Jesus did. Now, the best scholarship is that these people were people who had decided that spiritual freedom meant freedom to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever it was. People trying to have it kind of both ways claiming the name of Jesus, claiming a relationship with Jesus, but exempting themselves from the basic requirements of following Jesus. So the people weren't being hated. The actions were being hated. But we don't have to look out there to find this kind of phenomenon taking place. A group of people associated with an outfit called the Barna Research Group uh, do regular surveys of the Christian community And they ask questions that have led them to several conclusions. And one of the conclusions that they regularly come up with is the reality that what we say we believe and what we do are often two completely different things. Spiritual split personalities. We all have some work to do in this area. And Jesus points out that this church had been effective in noting this and acting on it. So, but here's the thing. When Jesus talks to this church at Ephesus, he points out that they have a, something very particularly poignantly awry. Verse four, Jesus says, they have forgotten their first love. Jesus, right there in their midst, knows that they have drifted, drifted from that first concern Now here, this church, in fact, the church, had only been around about 45 years, but had already lost its way. It's easy, easy, easy in the routine of life for churches and for individual believers to lose sight of the first love. Now, I don't know what it was that exactly derailed the people in Ephesus, but some non-essential part of church life had already come to displace Jesus as their primary object of concern and attention. The Apostle Paul called this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And by the way, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he's talking to this very same church at Ephesus. So what we need to see this morning is that things can look like church, but not be church. They can look like church, but absent that primary operating concern of love for Christ, it doesn't matter. So when Jesus talks about having lost their first love, he gives a very particular and really spot-on prescription in verse 5. He says, to remember from where they have fallen and repent and do the things at first. I can still remember the first days of my relationship with Jesus. I was in the military, a good dear friend of mine named Harry had been instrumental in pointing me in the right direction towards Christ, and one day I finally said yes to Jesus. And I can remember the heavenly high I was on for a couple, three weeks there. I couldn't get enough of the Bible, couldn't get enough worship music, I had gospel music pumping to my brain. pretty much. I couldn't get enough of prayer. Couldn't keep my mouth shut about the presence of Jesus in my life. I got over that pretty darn quickly. Probably more quickly than the church at Ephesus did. But what does hearkening back to a believer's first love do? What happens when all the believers gather together in a local church, hearken back to their first love of Jesus? What happens is we get on the same page that personal preferences disappear, that historical episodes lose their grip of power that they can often hold in the life and fellowship of a church. Why does this matter? Why does Jesus start here with Ephesus, with this admonition about her first love? He starts here because, folks, there are consequences to our choices, both positive and negative. Jesus says, man, if you don't get your act together, in verse 5, if you don't get your act together, the Lord's going to come and extinguish your lampstand. The reality is that all churches have a life cycle. Almost no church exists today in the same way, shape, and form that existed when it was launched. For many churches, that sometimes means closed doors. And in particular, churches that miss out, ignore, deliberately focus on things besides the rightful first love. Jesus' closure is their future. I can't tell you how many discarded church buildings I've driven by seen pictures of that have been made over into all kinds of other things. Restaurants, homes, office space. Neglecting first love has consequences. Not just for churches, though, but for people, for individual Christians. Neglecting the first love has this... And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Some translations say abundantly. When our focus is not on our first love, Jesus, that abundance diminishes over time. The fullness of life decreases over time. Not that we can somehow forfeit our relationship with Jesus, but we miss out on the multiple dimensions of what the Bible calls joy when we do not focus on the primary object of our affection, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Nature abhors a vacuum. If Jesus is not first place in our lives, something else is going to be first place in our lives. I think we've seen this last week, that some people may have put politics as first place in their lives. I think we realize that sometimes people put their occupations, their jobs, their professions as first place in their lives. Sometimes people make social standing in the community the first place in their lives. Whatever we use to displace Jesus is going to diminish the reality of the promise of life to the full that Jesus has offered to us. Investing in other things as if they hold first place. So, what does Jesus say about that? He says in verse 7, we should be overcomers. That we should refocus our attention on the reality of our relationship with Jesus. We should refocus our attention on the center, the primary, the bullseye, the target of our connection with Christ, which leads Jesus to this exhortation and part of this pattern in verse 7. He says, Listen up! All ears! He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A couple had gone to visit a marriage counselor. The husband went reluctantly, but his wife had insisted several times, and so they finally went. In their encounter with the marriage counselor, they were talking about their relative perspectives on the marriage. The husband took about a minute and a half to share his. The wife went on a little longer than that, and as she began to talk and Go further, the counselor realized that there was kind of this wistful sadness about her understanding of where she stood in their relationship, her relationship with her husband, and the idea of love. And so, as this went on and on, the, the wife finally, she finally just kind of ran out of steam and sat there looking sad. So, the counselor got up from behind his desk. He gathered the wife, lifted her up, and gathered her into a passionate embrace. And the counselor gave her a breathtaking, lingering kiss that made her go weak in the knees. And the counselor gently released the wife and sat her back down in her chair, turned to the husband and said, that's what your wife needs. The husband said, fine, I'll bring her by three times a week and you can get it done. It's an old joke, but it rings true because we all know that relationships require maintenance and that it's very easy to fall into patterns whereby our passion dissipates and the energy of the first love disappears. Let's be careful, shall we? As we move into 2021 and we listen to Jesus talk to this church at Ephesus, let's be careful to not let that happen in our personal lives nor in the life of our church together. Jesus is our first love. Let's embrace him in the fullness of passion. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for this reminder from your word about the importance of the priority that we need to place are centering our attention and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as our first love. Not out of duty or a sense of obligation, but out of a genuine sense of passion about the one who has loved us enough to lay down his life for us. Father, find us to be people in the next days who truly can say our first love is indeed Jesus.